Our Lord, we thank you that you are a Savior, that you are one who saw us in our sin, saw us in our need, saw us when we were helpless and hopeless in and of ourselves, and you sent Jesus in this world to redeem us, to deliver us from our sin, to pay the penalty that we deserve so that we would not have to face your judgment and condemnation, but instead go free because of the work that Jesus completed on the cross. Lord, now as we open the scripture, I pray that you will open our eyes in fresh ways to this good news of the gospel. Help us to see in fresh ways how we have a substitute. We have one who took our place, and that can change our whole lives and how we live our lives and the direction and focus we have in our lives. So, Lord, please be our teacher here now. I pray that you will drive home the gospel in fresh ways in our lives and in our hearts and help us to understand Scripture better so that, again, we can apply it to our lives. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're continuing our series called Father of Faith, the Life and Legacy of Abraham. Now today we're coming really to the pinnacle of Abraham's life, that part of his life that he is best known for. And so I invite you to turn to the Bible this morning to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. And if you do not bring a Bible but would like to follow along in one, you can grab one from the pew and turn to page 19. As you're turning there, I want to tell you a story. And the story involves a woman named Corey Tenboom. Corey Tenboom was born in the Netherlands. And during World War II, her family was involved in hiding Jewish people from the Nazis. And after a while, that family was discovered. And several family members were hauled off in the concentration camps, including Corey and her, uh, brother, her sister and her father. Now, unfortunately, Corey's sister and father both died in that concentration camp. Corey survived. In her later years, she moved here to America. And she attended a church in Fullerton, California called First Evangelical Free Church. And the pastor of that church at that time was a man named Chuck Swindoll. Now, Chuck Swindoll writes about an experience he had with Corey Ten Boom. I want to read to you in Chuck's words what that experience was. He said, After a worship service on one occasion, I stood at the door greeting people as they left, and eventually it was just Corey and me and my family. I'll never forget the moment. My kids were playing all around, and she asked if they were mine. Yes, I said, two boys and two girls. Give me your hands, Pastor Swindoll, she said as she held out her little hands. I put my hands in hers as the kids bounced all around us. Listen to me, Pastor Swindoll. Hold everything loosely. Hold everything loosely. Because if you don't, it will hurt when the Father pries your fingers open and takes them from you. They're his, you know, not, not yours. You know that? Yes, ma'am, I know that. Then she pushed her hands together with mine and released a deep sigh. When I looked into her eyes, I could see her sister Betsy, whom she had lost in the Nazi death camp. She knew what she was talking about. Her message was clear. She didn't need to say anything more. Don't clutch. Don't cling. Our children are not really ours. Today we're talking about this topic of holding everything loosely, just like Corey Ten Boom said, hold everything loosely. 
We're talking about the topic of surrendering everything that we have to God. And this is a theme that's going to be very clear in our passage today. So let's read that passage now. I invite you to follow along as I read Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father! And Abraham said, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So here in this passage, Abraham faced the biggest test of his life. It specifically describes as a test in verse 1 when it says, After these things, God tested Abraham. Now, a test really of any sort shows what is happening on the inside. A, a test reveals what otherwise may not be known to others or even to ourselves. Now, there are a few places in Scripture to describe why God might bring a test into someone's life. For instance, in Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, God describes uh, through Moses why the Israelites were out in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8, 2, Moses told the Israelites God was, quote, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So this was a test for them. Would they obey God or would they not? It was a test. Similarly, in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, Peter talks about trials that come into our lives, quote, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be revealed and will result in praise to God. So Peter is saying that when trials come into our lives, they are testing whether our faith is genuine or if our faith, on the other hand, will just falter. If it's sort of like 
a faulty faith or, or, or an ungenuine faith when difficulty comes, if it's just perhaps lip service. Now, God, he already knows what's on the inside. He knows everything. He knows what's going to happen in the future. But when a test comes into our lives, one of the great benefits for it for, for, through the test is that God reveals us to ourselves. He helps us see what is really happening inside of us. And this means that if we may struggle a little bit in that test, if we are humble and teachable, God will use that test to refine us and help us to trust God more. Perhaps a different outcome might be that if, if our faith is really deep and genuine, if we have a true godly character, the test will reveal that as well, that what we have in our faith and our character is real and it's deep. I mean, you look at Abraham. He had already faced many different tests through the course of his life. Some he passed with flying colors, and some he failed miserably. But even when he failed, God used those failures to refine Abraham and help Abraham trust him more. And so Abraham comes into Genesis 22 with a battle-tested faith. A battle-tested faith. And now he is facing the ultimate test. Now, I think it's important to understand that a true test of faith strikes at something we hold dearly. Now, if we have a difficulty that comes into life and it's affecting something that we don't really care about, it's not going to be much of a test of faith. It's not going to be much of a crisis. We're going to be like, ah, I don't really care about that thing anyway. But a true test of faith strikes at something that we hold dearly. It's something that we treasure. And in verses 1 and 2, it's clear that this test is coming and testing Abraham in a place of something that he holds dearly. Verses 1 and 2 say, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. So God is pointing to this treasure that Abraham held dearly. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Yes, that son, Isaac, your only son, whom you love. God is really ratcheting up the drama and the tension of what's happening here. I mean, can you imagine how Abraham and Sarah, how much they adored their son? I mean, they had endured decades of infertility, decades of waiting, and now they have a child in their own home who is their own child. And now God is telling them to, to release their child, surrender their child Isaac, and not only surrender him and release him, but sacrifice him in a way that is going to lead to Isaac's death. I mean, think about how hard that would be. I mean, most trials that we face in life we, we don't know for sure where is God in the midst of that trial. I mean, we know that God is faithful, that we can trust him, but we aren't quite sure what is God's role in this trial. Is he bringing it directly into our lives for a specific reason? Is this trial just, you know, a, a natural consequence of a decision we made? Is it a natural consequence of just living in a broken world? It's sometimes hard to know exactly what God's role is in the trial that we are facing. But for Abraham and Sarah... There is absolutely no question what God's role was in that trial. This trial is coming into their lives because of the direct and obvious um, command from God to sacrifice their son Isaac. I mean, think about the crisis of faith that could cause when this is coming directly from God to take this drastic action. It could have been a massive crisis of faith. But what we see next is that faith trusts God's faithfulness. 
which empowers our surrender to him. Faith recognizes that even though our circumstances may be confusing or bleak, God's still faithful, so we can trust him, which can lead us to surrender to him even in the midst of the trial. I mean, imagine yourself for a moment in Abraham's sandals. You're sitting there, you're, you're, you're not sitting there, you're actually walking. You're walking next to your son. He is your pride and joy. He's really just coming of age. He's a young teenager, early teens at that point. You look and you see the firewood on his back. In your nostrils, you can smell the smoke from the fire that you're carrying for the burnt offering. As you walk along with every step, you can feel the tap of the knife against your hip. It's pretty quiet. It's a quiet hike because normal topics of conversation just seem too superficial. And all of a sudden, your son Isaac breaks that silence and says, My father. And you say, Here I am, my son. What is it? Dad, we, we have fire and we have the wood, but, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? I mean, think about that. You're Abraham. How will you respond in that moment to your son? I mean, I think about myself if I were in that circumstance. I mean, I am, I'm not that emotional of a person. I'm more of a thinker than a feeler. But at the same time, I think in that moment, if my son asked me about what's happening here, whatever answer came out of my mouth, I sure think I would be choked up. At least I would have a catch in my throat in that moment. Now, in verse 8, we see what Abraham's response was. We don't know what his emotions were in that moment. But he said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God will provide. Abraham didn't know exactly what was going to happen. He didn't know it all, really. But he knew he could trust God. And we, we see this in a couple different ways. For instance, in verse 5, Abraham said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, the New International Version, that other translation of the Bible, helps make the pronouns clearer of what's being said here by Abraham. Let me read the NIV. It says, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Those pronouns were, were uh, within the original Hebrew text. It was in the ESV that I read earlier. Uh, but it's clear there in the NIV that I just read, we will worship and we will come back. Not just me, not just I. We, plural, we, Isaac and I, will both come back. So he is trusting that God is going to do something, even though he doesn't know exactly what it's going to be. Now over in Hebrews 11 in the New Testament, it provides a little bit more explanation of what was probably going through Abraham's mind at that point. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So let's review a few things that Abraham knew at that point. He knew that God had promised a child to him and that Isaac was a promised child. He knew that through Isaac, Abraham was, at least according to God, going to have many, many descendants. So these are some things, some truths, some promises that Abraham knew about from God. And he knew that God is faithful. 
So even though he's walking into an uncertain scenario where he doesn't know exactly how things are going to play out, he knows he can trust God. So he does trust God. He surrenders to God because he knew the Lord will provide. We see it in verse 7. Isaac asked, where is the lamb? Abraham replied, God will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering. God will provide. And so by faith, Abraham tied together his son's hands and had him lay down on the wood, preparing for the burnt offering. Now, just a, a quick side note on this. Typically, when we look at this passage, we, we applaud Abraham for his faith and his obedience. But I think we also have to recognize the, the obedience and faith of Isaac. Because Isaac at this point is an early teenager. He is certainly strong enough to, give up, uh, to put up a whole lot of resistance. Yet he doesn't. We see obedience and faith displayed by both the father and the son. So then Abraham takes the knife, preparing to slay his one and only son whom he loves. And suddenly in verse 11 it says, The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, Here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Now this phrase, the Lord will provide, it's the term Jehovah-Jireh, which is what Abraham names that place. But it's also a Hebrew name for God, Jehovah-Jireh, which means the Lord provides or the Lord will provide. Such a powerful reminder of God's provision, even when circumstances are bleak. God did provide, and Abraham passed the test. And what we see here is Abraham is an example of faith. Not only being justified by faith, which means being declared righteous in God's sight on the basis of faith, not works, but also Abraham's a prime example of living by faith, of orienting his life in such a way that prioritizes God and trusting and following God above all else, even to the point of surrendering his own son to God. Now all this raises a question for us, and here's the question. What in your life is God asking you to release to him? What in your life is God asking you to release to him? I mean, I think Abraham could look at us and say, okay, are you willing to surrender your most important treasure to God? Like I did. Or I think of Corey Tenboom. She could say to us, like she said to Chuck Swindoll, listen to me, hold everything loosely. Hold everything loosely. Because if you don't, it will hurt when the Father pries your fingers open and takes stuff from you. Everything in your life is his, you know, not yours. You know that? Or Jesus. Jesus looks at us and says, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. So it's the question, what in your life is God asking you to release to him? What has such a grip on your heart that God's saying, you know what, you're putting a much greater sense of worth in that thing than you are in me. 
Let me give you a, an image of how this can play out and what this is talking about. Imagine this little container contains whatever it is that is most important in your life or maybe multiple things that are of, of high level of importance in your life. Obviously, it's metaphorical. But just imagine this container holds those things that are most important that you treasure and cherish the most. Perhaps it's some certain possessions or money. Perhaps it's your performance and your accomplishments at work or at school or in sports. Perhaps it's your future in terms of hopes and dreams and plans that you have that you hold tightly to. Perhaps it's certain relationships that you have, people who are meaningful to you or bring great benefit to you. Just imagine that this container holds those things that are most important to you. The question is, what do you do with this container? How do you hold it in your life? Do you hold it like this, tight-fisted, with fingers you know, just tightly wrapped around it, saying, no, this is mine. I'm not going to let it go. I want to do with it what I want to do. I need to have it my way. Is that how you hold it? The things that are most important to you? Or on the other hand, do you hold it more like this, with open fingers, saying, God, the things represented in this container are, are, are so important to me. They mean a lot. Uh, I cherish them. I value them a lot. And I trust you as well. And so, God, I'm holding it with an open hand. I want to surrender these to you so that you can take, you can give back, you can give something more, something different. You know, part of the irony, if we are holding the things that are super important to us like this, is that there's then no room for God to add something new, something different, something better. Because we're just closed off saying, no, no, I just want it my way. I want to call the shots. The other thing that happens if we're holding our lives and our things that are important like this with a clenched fist is it doesn't give any room. Uh, I just said, um, forgot to bring new stuff, but it also creates an idol of anything that we are holding tightly to. It's idolatry. Because it's basically then us saying, God, this thing, this accomplishment, this person, is where I find my true sense of identity and worth and comfort and security rather than you. I need this. But instead, God calls us to hold everything in our lives more like this with an open hand. It's hard, though, to surrender like that. But one of the reasons that God brings trials and trusts into our lives, why he allows them in our lives, is to help us loosen the grip that we have on those things that are near and dear to us so that we will trust him. I mean, perhaps right now you are being tested with medical issues in your life or with parenting challenges that are pushing you beyond what you think you can handle. Perhaps it's peer pressure or a class at school or, or just kind of feeling out of control or just being overwhelmed by busyness or circumstances that just stink. There are so many different types of trials and tests that come into our lives, but whatever the test, the question is, will we trust God and will we surrender to him? Now remember, the true test of faith strikes at things that we hold dearly. And that makes the trial difficult. Like I said earlier, if, if there's a, a trial or something that comes that doesn't really threaten anything that means much to us, we're going to be like, yeah, this isn't a big deal. It's fine. Not, not anything too bad. But if it strikes something that's really meaningful to us, it's going to be incredibly difficult. I remember back when I was in college, I transferred my last couple of years to a school in a different state. And I had a truck that I, I liked a whole lot right then. 
And my first weekend in that new town, I got pulled over by a police officer and told that a couple accessories in my truck were illegal in that state. Therefore, I needed to take them off and show him the truck within 10 days, or else I was going to start getting tickets for those illegal items on the truck. Now, I was not pleased at all with that. I was actually very angry because that truck was a treasured possession. Now, some of you might be hearing this thing, what? It's just a truck. It's not that big a deal. You know, that, that just displays what I just said, that if something is a big deal to you, you're going to take it seriously. If it's not really that big a deal, you're going to be like, yeah, not a big deal. For me, this was a big deal because I had wrapped a significant amount of my identity into that truck. And that's what I realized over the coming days. I mean, I was researching the Internet about laws. Do I really have to do this? And I was wrestling with God because I was, I was upset. I, I, I placed a lot of my identity in the distinctiveness of that truck. I was mad. But as I was wrestling with God, this test revealed an idol in my life. I'd made that truck into an idol. I'd placed too much of my sense of identity in the appearance of that truck. And God began to move me over those following days to release that idol more. And this may seem like a relatively small thing, but at the same time, it was a very momentous experience in my life just of taking another step of surrendering to God. And I think about since then, there have been many other bigger tests, bigger trials in my life, including some very difficult eye problems I've faced in the last couple of years. But one of the things that we can always experience is that God is always faithful. Whatever test comes into our life, God wants to show his faithfulness through it. God always provides. He's Jehovah Jireh. Even if the way that he's providing is not necessarily the way that we want or the way that we expect, he is faithful. And so the question for us is, will we trust him? I want to close with two statements for us. First of all, for people who have godly character and deep faith in God, their character and faith have practically always been forged in the fire of trials and tests. Because that's where deep faith and godly character develop. It's through the fire of trials and and tests. So this is something to chew on, and it brings even a greater meaning to the trials and tests and difficulties that we do face. Now that was the first statement. I'm going to make a second statement in a moment, but I want to set it up first. In our passage, Isaac asked, where is the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb, my son. God did provide for Abraham and Isaac, and God has provided an even greater way for us. Through Jesus, he's provided a lamb for us. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming from a distance. And John the Baptist said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the ultimate lamb who was sacrificed in our place. In Genesis twenty-two thirteen, it says that Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now that phrase, instead of his son, is a picture of the gospel. Because the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us, is based on the idea of substitution. There's a substitute that took the place of someone. The ram became a substitute for Isaac. Jesus was a substitute for us. This is sometimes by theologians called substitutionary atonement that Jesus became a substitute, paying the death penalty for sin that we deserve, so that when we come to faith in him, we don't have to pay that penalty. 
So that leads to the second statement based on this passage. That it's like, it's this. Like God provided a substitute in Abraham's need, God provided a substitute in our need as well. However, rather than sparing his son, God made his son the substitute. God's son Jesus is the substitute that we need. This shows how Genesis 22 foreshadows the good news of the gospel. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave, who? His one and only Son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God was willing to surrender and give up his Son for our benefit. You know, God loves his Son. Echoing Genesis 22, it could be said of God, take your Son, your only Son, Jesus, whom you love, and let him die on a cross. This is what God did for us. Jesus, who is God's beloved Son, was sacrificed in our place so that we could go free, so we don't have to face condemnation and judgment for our sins. This is the good news of the gospel. It's pictured in Genesis 22. It was lived out 2,000 years ago, uh, later on the cross of Calvary, where Jesus died in our place as a substitute. And to help us remember what Jesus did for us. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And he said this about the Lord's Supper. So we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Remember Jesus' substitution in our place, paying the penalty we deserve. So if you'd like to uh, partake in the Lord's Supper with us and you didn't already get one, here's a communion kit. There are more back there that you can get up and get even right now. The bread represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. The cup represents Jesus' blood that was shed for us. You don't have to be a member or regular tender of freedoms to join with us this morning. If you're someone who's placed your faith in Jesus and is trusting in Jesus to forgive you of your sins, trusting in Jesus to be your substitute rather than thinking your own good works and your own religious activities are going to earn favor in God's sight, then you're welcome to join with us this morning because the key is trusting in Jesus because he is the substitute who went to the cross and take our place to pay our penalty. I invite you now to take off the top layer of the the cellophane to release the bread. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We now open the other layer to release the juice. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, it's the glorious picture of the gospel that we've been provided with today, that we have a substitute. Jesus took our place so that we could go free. God did not spare his own son, but in his great love gave him 
for us. If you provide for us in that way, you will provide for us in every other way that we need as well because he is always faithful. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We know that we struggle at times to trust you. We have those tests, those trials. We thank you that we have a high priest in Jesus who always sympathizes with our weaknesses and temptations, who will always be there walking with us. And Lord, I pray that you will guide us, empower us when we face those difficulties in life. Help us to always remember that you are faithful, that you will never leave us, never forsake us, and that we can trust you. Lord, help us to surrender to you. Surrender is hard because we want to do things our way. But Lord, your way is best. Thank you that you've demonstrated the best way, which is following Jesus. You've given him on our behalf as a substitute in our place. And we say thank you, Lord. Thank you that we have a hope in Jesus and pray these things in his name. Amen.